Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, we are back. We are in the man cave. Focus Compounding Podcast, our studio, mm-hmm. which happens to also be my office. Hope everyone is having a great day. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going today? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going fantastic. Hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if you are in New York City, you want to meet up with Jeff and myself, your prospective investor, we're going to be there uh, the week of September 16th. Mm-hmm. So we'd love to uh, meet and chat with you. Uh, email me, info at focuscompounding.com. We'll definitely get something on the calendar. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Thumbs this video up. That helps spread the word. If you're listening on the podcast app, and you love the work that we're doing. If you give us a rating review, every time I look, it just puts a smile on my face. Okay. If you want to put a smile on my <laughs> face, give us a rating review. Hopefully it's five stars. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully it's five stars. So today we're going to be going over um, a talk that Alice Schroeder gave. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken about this on the podcast before, how if you want to move up, uh, kind of go upstream to learn about people, um, try to get in contact with people that are close to them, right? Mm-hmm. I was referring to Warren Buffett. I probably can't speak to him, but I right. can learn a lot from people that are in his inner, inner circle that are willing to share things. Monish Pabrai mm-hmm. shares a lot of things about him. Charlie Munger has talked a lot of things about him. Alice Schroeder obviously wrote a book about him, so she knows a lot about yep. him. And in this talk, I'll put it in the show notes. It's like uh, 40 minutes. It's a great mm-hmm. chat from 2008. Uh, she went over the three things that he goes through when he is investing in a company. Right. And right. It was in a, a specific investment was mid-continent tab card company. Yeah, that's the way right. that she demoed it yeah. out. Um, and I thought it which was he earned like what she said like 33 or 34% over 18 year period something like year. that. Yeah. Some, it was a private investment that he made, yeah. Yeah, some incredible stuff, yeah. return. Um, and she sort of just walked through his mindset and his thought process throughout the mm-hmm. throughout the investment. So I thought it'd be interesting to sort of um, start from one and go through all of his thoughts, right? Okay. And then see what your thoughts are on it. And uh, the first step that she said that he thinks about, and he does this with every single company, mm-hmm. is what are the odds that the business could be subject to any catastrophic loss or ca- catastrophe? Yeah, loss? that's the first one we yeah. do. Yeah, it's the first one he does, I think. Uh-huh. So, um, and her point was it's the opposite of how most people think. They think about what's the return and stuff, and then over time they're thinking about as they get deeper into learning about the stock, what's the risk they could go to zero? Yeah. He quickly tries to figure out if there's a real risk that it'll go to zero, and then uh, if there is, then he doesn't uh, research it any further. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I would say that's true for us, too. Um, that means certain industries, they're not going to be a lot of, uh, you're not going to look at a lot. Like which ones um, would you not automatically? I almost never buy a retailer. Yeah. Uh, and it, I mean, you could, in for the people that know the whole Sears situation, right? Mm-hmm. Sears, he was asked if you would ever be interested in Sears, and he yeah. just, you know, said the question, can you think of any retailer that has had issues and sort of rose from the dead and came back? Right. And he's like, I can't. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of him in real life going through that step one that she just referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, a lot of investors, I think, would do exactly the opposite. A lot of investors did with Sears. You know, they said, okay, well, there's all these risks and stuff, but we want to, yeah, we want to own and everything. Now, you know, those are all judgment calls. Lots of people say we own NACO, and NACO could, you know, it's coal, it could go to zero or whatever. We have reasons why we think that it that's not 
likely. And there are reasons that I saw in the first five minutes of learning about the company. So that's why I kept researching it. Um, normally, it's true that if you had a highly leveraged coal company or something, I wouldn't um, keep looking at it. But there were reasons with contracts and things that I decided to keep looking at NACO. Mm-hmm. Um, so Buffett's bought insurers and things that he figured were safe when other people might say, well, how do you know about that, about an insurer or a bank or something? So it depends on what your your circle of competences and things like that probably too. Yeah. Um, it generally means avoiding huge amounts of debt and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely means avoiding companies that have potentially huge amounts of competition or compete against really tough companies. In the case that she was talking about, the reason why he wouldn't do it is because they were going head-to-head with IBM. So he said, no, I don't want to invest in a company that's going to be competing with IBM. Mm-hmm. Now, even though she was saying that, why did he get interested in it then? He got interested like a year later when they proved that they could. Um, when uh, they were going seventy percent a year, yeah, where thirty they, or forty where, where percent net that margins. People would buy um, tab cards from them. So tab cards are uh, were cards used in computing, uh, mechanical computing, uh, and so if you want to think of it like um, I don't know what you compare it to from computing times that people would remember. Um, you know, if you're compared to, right? to, to, yeah, I don't know what you compared to there. Um, but uh, th- but they were necessary to, to use in all those things, and basically yes. they were they're how you fed instructions into a into a computer. Um, so uh, they uh, the company was able to do um, quicker deliveries and probably better service and stuff than IBM. IBM was a very bureaucratic organization and uh, probably didn't do those sorts of things well. And so maybe they didn't deliver on time and then, you know, other problems that people would have. And you, at the time, you wouldn't have been able to use a computer if you didn't have the cards that you needed to do it mm-hmm. um, to, to run whatever things you were doing, whether these were academic things or business things or accounting things or whatever they were using it. Um, so a s- supply of the cards that you needed being delivered on time and stuff would have mattered a lot to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's when he changed his mind when he saw that people were willing to buy from them instead of IBM. Yeah. And then he saw there wasn't a... a any catastrophe risk that he saw it wasn't a risk that it would go to zero uh-huh and like she did say he made like 30 percent a year for like 18 years yeah but i mean do you see that with what we do in terms of eliminating things right away oh sure yeah, yeah. i mean i i mean we in one of the podcasts we did uh, a couple of weeks ago we actually spoke about somebody said how do you uh, guard against like information overload right mm-hmm. and our answer was well actually the companies that we look at we know that they're all pretty interesting because we have a lot of I guess you could say checklist items that sort of mitigate all the fluff for us or like the fat, you know? Yeah. Well, you could spend a ton of time, a ton of time uh, analyzing companies that might go under. Yeah. But might provide a really big upside return. Yeah. And And on the probabilities, it might work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But those are very hard to figure out all the way through to the end of your analysis, you're trying to kind of handicap the the odds of it being able to do any of, uh, you know, to have a big upside and the odds that it'll go to zero and trying to figure out if the market's pricing in the correct odds. Sure. Those are the most difficult always to figure out is when there's a big upside, but you know the downside is zero. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next thing she says that he does is she's never seen him do anything involving a model and he really only uses historical records. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I actually, I, I mean, that's probably when Munger has said that she's never seen him do a DCF ever. Yeah. And I know that uh, when they've been presented uh, books from investment banks and stuff about here, can you, you know, look at this because we prepared it for you to yeah. buy the company. Munger which, jokes that he, he usually throws up on the, He doesn't want to throw up on the table or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So which would include a model. That's what the investment yeah. bank always does is a model for you uh, about the company. 
and what they're likely over the next five years or so sure. um, to be what their um, results are. And they don't care about that. But I do know in what she was saying and makes sense because she said in that, I think in that video, she said she thinks she spent 2000 hours with him or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that he does like all the historical financials. Cause yeah. I've seen some things where he emailed someone or whatever and said, you know, give me literally all the financials that you have going back as far as possible when looking at buying a business. So um, that would make sense. So like really, really old financials. Uh, right up, I just did a Monarch Cement. I use financials going back to 1970. Mm -hmm. So it's common for us to look at financials going back as far as possible. Mm -hmm. You can always get financials from public companies that have been public the whole time yeah. that go back to the 1990s. So I think everyone would have had to be on Edgar, which is the SEC website for companies filing their 10Ks and stuff um, by about 1995 or something like that. So by now, there should be about 25 years of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you could always find that for companies. And that's one of the first things that you always do in, in any company that we look at. Yep, put it all in there no matter what. It's literally one of the very first things. Yeah, yeah. is you, you go back and get... What sales, the EBIT, yep. the free cash flow, or net income, or something mm -hmm. all the all the years. Absolutely, they have. Yeah. yeah. And if there's specific things about the company, uh, tons, number of stores, uh, you know, any of those sorts of things, squ uh, sales per square foot, those sorts of things, you can also find mm -hmm. all that and do it. It would depend on the company. Yeah. Now, why do you think he doesn't really do any sort of projections or anything like that? Is it because when he's when he is handicapping the stock, he wants the margin of safety baked in to the point where if it makes sense without um, forecasting any numbers or doing any sort of models like that, then it could be a potential good investment. Yeah. Because I, I know, he, I mean, like, I think it was Hagstrom's book. He actually spoke about, like, you shouldn't need a model to justify buying, you know, a company. Like, an investment should pretty much hit you on the top of your head. It should be that obvious. Yeah, I think I said that. I don't remember if I said it on the podcast. I may have. Um, if you literally need to actually use Excel, then don't make the investment. Yeah. I mean, we use Excel to put things in for certain historical things. Um, it's very useful that way. I'm not going to try to calculate 50 years of data on my own that way. But if I look at a sheet that has 50 years of data, I don't actually need Excel to be able to see if it's very consistent or not very yeah. consistent to see if it's made a profit every year or not. Um, yeah, I can't think of cases where you would actually need a calculation like that, where you need Excel or a calculator or anything like that that you can do yourself to figure out um, what the return you need is. Um, Buffett probably does it the reverse way. In fact, I think Al Schroeder said that, that he thinks of what investment he, uh, what return he wants, yeah. and then how certain is this to get him that return, Yeah, that was basically. the next one. Okay. So we're just going on that. Wants a 15% return today that he feels like is going to grow. Yeah, well, that made sense in the 50s or whatever now for, yeah. for him. I mean, maybe that could be true for people listening to this. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, markets are expensive, but if you're working with small amounts of money, maybe. But certainly for Buffett, he has way too much at Berkshire uh, to be able to demand that What much do you think today. he's demanding, 10%? Maybe. Well, I mean, in the past when they asked him about, like, discount rates, which I guess is different than this, I mean, yeah. kind of probably thinking about it the same way. Yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, the premium that 10% would be over the 30-year treasury today. Oh, sure. It's a lot. That, yeah. But that's not very – it's actually not uh, – 10% and 15% are pretty similar. 15% when he was – when she was talking about that and 10% mm -hmm. today are similar premiums over the bond. So, um, you know, if you're doing a discount using that, I would suppose that, um, yeah, the old 15% is now 10%. So 10%. what does he mean when he says that? Is that like a earnings yield or he thinks the business is going to grow by 15%? Well, or? yeah, when she was talking about it there, she meant an earnings yield basically. So like return on equity or? The, the, no, no, literally the earnings yield. She yeah. meant that he was buying it at um, whatever that would be, six or seven times earnings, seven uh -huh. times earnings, yeah. Um, 
and then he wanted to grow. So he wanted yeah. to pay a PE of like, let's say seven or something and have it grow. Mm-hmm. And maybe today you'd want to pay a PE of 10 and have it grow. I think that's hard to find. It's not impossible, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very hard in the things that he does now. Well, of course. Yeah. Um, but you could buy things that you think are going to recover from where they were or that he's projecting for some reason in a couple of years that their earnings will be a lot higher or something like that. Although I don't remember the exact price he paid for like Apple or something, but you know, some of it was a pretty low PE, which I mean, was like what ten to twelve at least, right? Know, and and when, when I say growth, he may be projecting. In that case, actually, when she did talk about it, she was talking about him projecting one year's growth. Yeah. So like the forward PE, actually. Uh-huh. So I don't know to say that he doesn't project any growth. He doesn't do a model for the future. But if the company's basically telling him we're going to have higher uh, earnings this year than last year, then he may be using you know the earnings right now, not looking backwards. You know, um, yeah, and. It, I think that approach means that that's why you don't have to model it out because mm-hmm. he doesn't have to actually calculate out what he thinks the stock is worth. Sure. What he can do instead is say, how confident am I that buying it today will get me a good enough return? Yeah. yeah. And that's what he does, right? Can I yeah. get that today? Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's she explained that in that video. And obviously he often can't because even early on, he would wait a long time. Even with the partnership years, he would own a lot of something and he didn't necessarily trade out in and out of stocks that quickly. So he must have been passing on a lot of situations. We know he passed on that one when they first presented with yeah. the, that mid-continent um, tab card he passed on and then waited a year. Mm-hmm. If he were 23 or 33 okay. today, what do you think he'd focus on? Um, hmm. Probably other countries. Probably. Really? And then in the U.S., probably, I'm going to say what we do, which is overlook stocks. But that's what he did, too, in his early partnership years, uh-huh. in the very early years. So illiquid things and stuff like that. I also think other countries. I think that's likely. Um, because they're more overlooked than the U.S. So if you could learn a lot about them, I think that would be very useful. Mm-hmm. So things like uh, Korea, which he invested in personally and stuff, I think that he would do that kind of thing in a big way. I think in a talk he mentioned that if he were doing the partnership or something – and he had had the opportunity in the early 2000s of uh, Korea. He would have, his fund, you know, would have been 100% in Korea, basically, that he was saying, you know. And I think that makes sense. So finding things that have those really low PEs but are going to grow or are basically okay companies. Profitable. Yeah, yeah. he's talked about how he thinks he could make 50% a year. And I said that a long time ago. But in uh, if he was working with a million dollars or something. Yeah. And um, that might be true for him. Um, I think he took that statement back. He took it back? I, I think he said like that was like misinterpreted. But oh, I don't okay. Know. Yeah. Um, well, he made 30% a year when the Dow probably did, I don't know, six or seven or yeah. something. Mm-hmm. So it, if you outperformed, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't know exactly. I mean, uh, is it, it – there's some things where – I mean, in Japanese net nets, you probably could have made 50% a year. That's not impossible. He probably could have. Yeah, yeah. I bet that that's true with the kind of extra work that he did. If you read the snowball, the amount of work that he did to find not just a net net or something, but the best net net yeah. and stuff. Yeah, he really learned a lot about them. So I won't rule out that he could have earned 50% a year on a million even today. Sure. Um, but I think that um, he would definitely focus on much less well And be very things. concentrated? Yes. Well, I he's mean, always been very concentrated. Yeah. So there's never been time when he was. But even I mean, Monish said that when he was asking Munger... Uh, mm-hmm. And Monish was actually talking about that in a recent talk. He said that in his personal account, he usually only owned like two to th- two to three stocks. Yeah, the whole time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Buffett was always very very concentrated, and I don't think that that there's that's one thing that's never changed throughout the whole time. I mean, he's probably more diversified now than he's ever been. Berkshire Hathaway sure, is more diversified yeah. now. Um, but yeah, even if you look, 
even when he was taking Ben Graham's class and stuff, from everything we know, he owned very few stocks. Um, even when he would do Ben Graham type buying of things, he would buy the best ones of whatever Graham owned. Yeah. Instead of like what Graham would do, which is to buy everything. Sure. You know, he he would just literally, if it passed the checklist, he would buy it. You know, mm-hmm. in an equal amounts or whatever. So he if he was Graham was willing to own ten stocks or hundred stocks. If hundred stocks passed, then he would yeah. own hundred stocks. Yeah. You know, an equal amount. Um, but Buffett never did that. So what do you think about? Um, Bill Ackman buying Berkshire Hathaway? Uh, I don't have a strong opinion on that. Um, I think Berkshire is probably cheap compared to the market. Yeah. Um, I think it's huge. And so it'll be hard for it to have high returns compared to other sorts of businesses. Uh, Huge in terms of how much it retains. Yeah. If it paid out a dividend or bought back stock, then that would solve its problem. Mm -hmm. Or if it did both those things. Um, So if it just paid out all its earnings and dividends or used it all to buy back stock or something, I wouldn't have this issue. But retaining all of that, I don't see how you can have really high returns on it. Um, So I'm somewhat skeptical of the ability of the business to um, have good returns going forward unless it finds a way to... Uh, deal with that. They just sure. will have uh, the returns that Berkshire's going to get will be lower than the stock market if it doesn't figure out something to do pretty soon. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can buy other businesses. Like say you buy a you know a restaurant chain or something, they can open another restaurant with the money they retain. Sure, which will earn a higher return than what Buffett can get on a hundred billion dollars. I mean, Buffett may be able to get a fifty percent return on a million, or yeah. if you took that back, then not. But it could be as hard to get a five percent return on a hundred billion. Sure, it's not easy to spend a hundred billion on something sure. yeah. <laughs> unless he literally just buys the S and P five hundred or something. You're getting yeah. to the, where it's very hard to deploy that much capital. Mm-hmm. So unless they buy back stock, pay dividends, things like that, uh, it's going to be very very hard. And it's only going to get harder all the time. Yeah, sure. What do you think if he um, would have always stayed small? So like mm-hmm. let's say under a hundred million. Yeah, right. Small, whatever. Right. Um, do you think he would have adapted the Phil Fisher framework? Yeah. There was already strong signs he was doing that uh-huh. before his partnership was over. I mean, I guess to his biggest point, position ever said, in the partnership was American Express, which, sure, which has very, nothing to do with Ben Graham yeah. uh, approach at all. Uh-huh. Though Ben Graham's biggest position was Geico. Yeah, which is which also is the great. least Ben Graham <laughs> yeah, of the. Sure. No, I mean he still got it at a price that was super cheap, Graham. Yeah. But still, if you were going to guess which one, you know, uh, that would be in some ways the least likely and the most concentrated that he did. Um, uh, yeah, I think that Buffett was headed in that direction. Well, he had bought Disney, American Express, some things in the in the um, partnership by then. I think he probably would have gone even further that way. Mm-hmm. And I think his returns would have been great if he had stayed that small. I think that was always the most difficult for him, the pushing down returns, is getting bigger. Sure. That's yeah. always the thing I mean, because he ran a pretty big – his partnership was pretty big, mm-hmm. inflation-adjusted for 10. Yeah. I mean, would it be close to, like, what – I mean, I don't know pretty, what the point. Where I think I've looked at it before. I mean, definitely more than five hundred million dollars in, today, oh, yeah, yeah. in today's dollars. I think okay. it was like close to a billion. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think if he kept managing money, and if he was managing today five hundred million or billion, I think he'd be doing pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> There's a huge difference between a billion and a hundred billion, or whatever, or whatever oh, sure. you want to say yeah. is the amount that he's yeah. allocating. But he's allocating right now a hundred billion, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, I don't know how to allocate hundred billion dollars. Do you have an idea what you do? <laughs> buy Apple. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. You'd have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you have to buy a tenth of Apple. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, it's crazy. He bought it? Apple and he still has a hundred billion that he hasn't used. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. Anyways, that's a good place to stop for today's video. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. If you want to meet up with us when we're in New York City, we're going to be in Manhattan. You want to meet up with us? Okay. Talk about yeah. investing. Con- we'll concepts. be all around, all around. Yeah, but that's where in we'll, the New York area. Yeah, well, New York area. 
Yeah. Uh, reach out info at focuscompounding.com. Follow me on Twitter at focusedcompound. Uh, connect with us there. And if you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to give us a thumbs up and uh, be sure to subscribe. That will notify you when we upload a video. Well, thank okay. everybody so much for tuning in. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.